Good morning, guys. Um, so Scott and I, we were discussing the summer and discussing what we've unpacked briefly with all of you about the call to intimacy that we feel the Lord is inviting us into. There was an urgency to it when we heard it. We felt like it was a returning to first love. And I love how Joshua, you know, his songs kind of reflected that. And then also, as uh, we're going to dive a little deeper into transformation, taking it from our head and hopefully allowing it to manifest in our hearts. We're going to try this. Uh, so when coming into this message today, I thought I was going to be talking about King Nebuchadnezzar solely and focusing solely on Daniel chapter 4. However, midweek through the night season, the Lord brought a revelation to me and he made a connection that I did not see. And today I am titling this, let's see if this works, Freedom from Guilt. We're going to look at Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, the Lord asked me to track him through all of scripture. And so just so you know, he shows up 90 times in 88 verses in 38 chapters, which is a lot of reading. So here we go. Actually, before we actually start, I want to pray for us as well um, and this word because there's parts in here that I know if misheard, they can seem offensive and I mean not to offend anyone. And I feel the weightiness of this word. So let's just pray about that, okay? Father, I just once again lay this before you this message that you brought forth. And I pray, Papa, that our hearts would be really good soil, that you would harvest a hundred times over what you plant, and that it would manifest in the lives of other people as well. Lord, I pray for eyes and ears to see and hear what the Spirit is saying this morning as we unpack what your word says. And Father, I pray that you would right now silence the accuser of the brethren who would want to make people feel guilty as we move forward in freedom from guilt or who would accuse us of saying things we have not said. Pray that your truth would shine this morning, shine your light on our hearts and our minds, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so in the night season, the Lord titled what I was processing as guilt consciousness, and he asked me to track Nebuchadnezzar through all of the scriptures, like I said, 38 chapters, and look for cause and effect. He stated these four questions to me that he wanted me to be aware of. The first one being, what leads one into guilt? The second being, where does guilt reside? Third, how does guilt affect one's being? And fourthly, how does deliverance from guilt take hold? And when I was conversing with the Lord about this, he made me a promise that throughout this month, deliverance would come from this thing that he said to me was a debilitator to the faithful heart. 
All right? We're going to begin by defining guilt. Guilt is the fact of having committed a specified or implied offense or crime. Consciousness, the fact of awareness by the mind of itself and the world. When we think about guilt and consciousness, it first shows up in scripture in the Garden of Eden. You can find the description of this in Genesis 3, verses 7 and 8. Then the eyes of both of them, Adam and Eve, were opened and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid from the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. All of a sudden, consciousness was present after they had eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that was not there prior to. And they became aware of a couple of things. One, nakedness. Two, a need for covering. Three, they were ashamed of each other's presence. And four, guilt before the Lord. So consciousness, if we're going to define it, Consciousness is a person's moral sense of right and wrong viewed as acting as a guide to one's behavior. Consciousness becomes the bridge then between the spirit, the soul, and the body, which were once connected. There was no division prior to the event of awareness, of lack, of guilt being made manifest in their persons because there was no conflict between the spirit or the soul or the body. They were at peace. They were at rest. They were comfortable with their nakedness. They were comfortable with their nakedness in front of each other, and they were comfortable with their nakedness before the Lord. But then after this, when consciousness is activated and becomes a part of the fragmentation that takes place, all of a sudden, the body is now a shameful thing because of its... um, defilement, like how the things that are covered are the places where the body dispels waste instantly, right? Which is considered a defilement, you know? Um, The things in the soul, the feeling of shame and guilt, all of that stuff residing in there, the emotional tension in relationships manifests. And then there is the fact that before the Lord... They have a guilt consciousness that they had done something very, very wrong. So our conscience then becomes the bridge for all three of these. The only problem is that as a bridge for all three of them, there is traffic. It's a freeway. There's traffic that goes back and forth. And oftentimes, the traffic can be from one source being God. He can traffic on that highway to communicate with us. Another source can be ourselves and our own desires. And the third source that can communicate to both spirit, soul, and body would be the kingdom of darkness. 
So there's some traffic going back and forth and it requires discernment, wisdom, understanding, knowledge and counsel and might to actually be able to only let the things that should pass, pass and take root and the others as gatekeepers not to let them in. So we're going to quickly uh, follow Nebuchadnezzar really briefly through some places in scripture. And in looking at cause and effect, I had to also unpack why, why was he present in that particular chapter? What was going on around the rest of, of Nebuchadnezzar that required him to be there? All right, so we're gonna jump straight in to 2 Chronicles 36. Now, I wish I had hours to spend with you laying a very firm foundation to walk through processes and the development as things went on, but I do not. <laughs> but it was a very rich experience following Nebuchadnezzar and looking for cause and effect in every single chapter. And I, I challenge you, go to Blue Letter Bible, type in his name, and you will find all 38 chapters, all 90 verses sorry, 88 verses, that it appears 90 times. So here we go. In 2 Chronicles 36, we are told about specifically in detail, three kings of Judah. One is Joachim, the other Joachim, and the thirdly is Zedekiah. And what we are told about them is this one phrase that the Lord makes manifest three times over with each king. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, his God. And the Lord then further describes what was considered evil by saying it was detestable actions. So it got me thinking, Lord, and I stopped and I asked the Lord, Lord, what is considered detestable to you? And automatically, this scripture popped into my head, Proverbs 6, 16, the Lord hates six things. In fact, seven are detestable to him. And they are arrogant eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed blood, innocent blood, a heart that plots wicked schemes, feet eager to run into evil, a lying witness who gives false testimony, and one who stirs up trouble among brothers. These seven things the Lord himself describes as detestable to his person. So when we're looking at guilt consciousness and we're looking for cause and effect and taking into consideration the first question that the Lord asked me to search for to find out what leads one into guilt, right there in Proverbs and through 2 Chronicles 36, their evilness before the sight of the Lord is a guilt stature, just like it was for Adam and Eve with doing what they did that led them to guilt being present. And it was a status of guilt that took place right there and then, and it is because of detestable things. In 2 Chronicles 36, it further unpacks one particular king, the last one, who incited, he, was, he so worked in the detestable things and then some that he incited the anger of the Lord. 
So much so that the Lord was just like, that's it, I'm done, you're out. I'm kicking you out of the land. I'm having this land all to myself. And they were these things. And he was not humble. He rebelled, and I'm just gonna go back to my notes so that I can give you the actual verse for that. Zedekiah, in verse 12 of this chapter, did not humble himself before the prophet Jeremiah at the Lord's command. The Lord had reached out to him and said, hey, what you're doing is not okay with me. It's detestable. You know this. I want you to repent. Humble yourself. He refused. The second thing that he did also in inclusion to the detestable practices, was he rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar who had made him swear allegiance by God. Now, this is really important, at least for me. I thought it was really important because right here we find one of the commandments that God gave to the people of Israel and to ourselves not to take the Lord's name in vain. And by professing to be loyal and faithful, which is an attribute of the Lord, invoking his name in making that profession and then not following through to rebel against King Nebuchadnezzar is a reflection on the God he says he serves. And that is taking the Lord's name in vain. And as a result, this also the Lord held against him. It also says in verse 13, that then following that rebellion, he became obstinate. Now, I looked up obstinate, and it says, stubbornly refusing to change one's opinion or chosen course of action despite attempts to persuade one to do so. Have you ever been obstinate? I have. I know, I know when my heart has risen up, I know I'm wrong, but I am relentless to continue and pursue my cause, and I become obstinate. As a result of being obstinate, the Lord further declares that because of his obstinance, he then hardened his heart. Not he, the Lord, but Zedekiah hardened his heart. And I guess in order to be obstinate, to refuse to change or to be corrected, right? Refuse accountability for your actions, your beliefs, your words, your whatever it is that's going on. In that is an element of hardening of the heart. Now, I'm no, I'm quite aware of a fact when I did this to the Lord. I was going to say, I don't think I've done this before to the Lord. No, actually, I have. I remember. I remember. Yep, I did, and I hardened my heart towards Him. And the Lord then defines that what that hardness of heart looked like. And it was against returning to the Lord and his ways. It then goes on to say in 2 Chronicles 36, that the leaders of the priests and the people, because of what was happening in Zedekiah and how he was managing himself, the leaders and the priests of the people began to multiply their unfaithful deeds. They then began to do detestable practices. And as a result, they defiled the Lord's temple that he himself had consecrated. So going back to detestable practices, 
we now know because of Proverbs 6.16 that the leaders of the priests and all the people then also had arrogant eyes. They too had lying tongues. They went about shedding innocent blood. And their hearts began to plot wicked schemes against each other so that they could come into a prophet. They were quick. They had feet that were quick to run to evil. And they were lying witnesses giving false testimony about other people, again, for individual profit. They also began to stir up trouble amongst their brothers. But it begs to ask the question, how does one go about defiling the Lord's temple that he had consecrated? Now, I ask this question of the Lord because it's really important that I know this because scripture tells me that this body, my body, your body, you believers at home and in the room, our bodies are the temples of the living God, which he himself has, you know, sanctified, right? And by his blood, by the blood of his son, the death of his son, he's consecrated these bodies. So I want to know. Well, it tells us what Zedekiah and the people did. And this was it. They ridiculed God's messengers. Ridicule. The subjection of someone or something to contemptuous and dismissive language or behavior. They despised his words, despise, to feel contempt or a deep repugnant for the word of God. Thirdly, they scoffed at his prophets to speak to someone or about something in a scornful, derisive, or mocking way. Which leads us to the second question that the Lord asked me, where does guilt reside? Where does it take up ownership? First of all, it is present before the, before the Lord. It resides before him. He is consciously aware of it. It doesn't leave his sight unless certain things come about. And so it resides in his presence before his eyes. Secondly, it resides in our pride and thirdly, it manifests or resides in the hardness of our hearts. Not only towards the Lord, but towards one another. So as we go on, the third question that the Lord asked, looking through cause and effect, was how does guilt affect one's being? Now, before I jump into this particular section please do not put words in my mouth. <laughs> do not get offended. Be really, really careful here to watch your emotional reaction to what I am about to say. Because this part of how it affects one's being manifests itself through Daniel chapter four. And this is where I thought I'd be camping out and taking a lot more time diving into this, but it is not. 
It is just, we're going to glide over it. And it revolves around Nebuchadnezzar. In Daniel chapter 4, which I have here, I want you to know if you've never read the book of Daniel, it is an amazing chapter because it is the only chapter in scripture that is written by a Gentile. Everything else from Genesis to Revelations is written by Hebrews, Jewish believers. And this is the only chapter written by King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, if you don't know anything about King Nebuchadnezzar, he was the king of Babylon. His name, um, Nebuchadnezzar, is in reference to his god, Nebo. Nebo is considered the son of another god. I think his name was Murdoch or something like that. And he is considered to have prophetic abilities, okay? And when you track the story of King Nebuchadnezzar, which shows up in Daniel 1, chapter 1, to Daniel chapter 5, you see these engagements that Daniel has with with his leadership team as he dreams a dream and doesn't tell them about what he dreamt and expects them to interpret Now, it seems like a ridiculous request, but having his name mean, may Nebo protect the crown, having his father just die and him inherit the kingdom and inherit his father's advisors, he tests them by the use of his God to say, you tell me what I dreamt and then I know you can interpret because Nebo has the ability to prophesy. And so what happens is that King Nebuchadnezzar can't get an answer from his people and decides he's going to kill them all. Hence, Daniel shows up on the scene, and there's this Daniel petitioning the Lord, the God of heaven and earth. And what happens? Uh, Daniel gets the interpretation, gets the whole dream, tells Nebuchadnezzar what his dream was, interprets the dream. And we know that it is a huge statue with a head of gold, you know, the chest of, of silver, you know, then it goes into bronze and, and clay, this big statue. And then all of a sudden, out of a mountain, a piece of rock that is not carved comes out and smashes the feet of this statue and it falls, it crumbles. And then that rock becomes a mountain itself. And it grows and grows and grows and overtakes everything. Daniel reveals to Nebuchadnezzar that God is saying, you are the head of gold. This is kingdoms. After you will come a kingdom that is not as powerful as you. Its reach won't go as far after that. Another kingdom that's less. And finally, till you get to this kingdom that has, you know, mixture in it. And it doesn't really stick very well together. There's a lot of disunity and fighting amongst it because it, it, it can't, it can't come to an agreement. So that's the first part. In this revelation that Daniel gives to Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar has a personal understanding of the God of heaven for the very first time, who truly can prophesy. And you see that in his reaction to Daniel. From there, shortly after that, the very image that he dreams about then becomes something that he manifests in the natural. And he then begins to create a statue and it is a statue to self. 
And his expectation is that everybody bows down and worships the statue when all the music plays. And this is Nebuchadnezzar's second um, encounter with the living God. Now, if you'll remember the last time I was up here, I talked about monuments to self and what happens when we build them. And so Nebuchadnezzar builds a statue. He encounters three Hebrew guys who decide not to bow down. No way, Jose, I am not worshiping that statue that you just made. Their names, as, as you, if you follow VeggieTales, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Rakshak, and Benny. Um, and so these three boys, despite Nebuchadnezzar's attempt to get them to bow, decide not to. And all of a sudden, King Nebuchadnezzar says, heat up the furnace seven times greater because he's so angry. He's furious, scripture says. He's so angry. Heat this puppy up seven times greater and he gets his best warriors, his best soldiers to bind these three boys and throw them into the fire. And they die, like the best soldiers die as they're throwing them in. And it's no sooner are they thrown into the fire that King Nebuchadnezzar gets off of his throne and he goes, oh, what's this? Hey, didn't we put three guys in there? Yes. I actually see four. They're all walking around and nobody's burnt. And one of them looks like the son of man. Second encounter with the living God. Second act of God revealing himself, Nebuchadnezzar, I need you to pay attention to me. From there, we are told that Nebuchadnezzar then has another dream. And this time, this is chapter three now of Dan, or chapter four of Daniel, and this time he dreams about this tree that has grown so tall into the heavens, its branches cover a huge expanse, animals are gathered underneath it, you know, it's in full bloom, full fruit, it's very fruitful. And then all of a sudden, a watcher declares from the heavens that the tree be cut down, but its stump remain. And it shakes Nebuchadnezzar in the night season. He asks for an interpretation and none of his advisors can give him one. And then along comes Daniel. He tells Daniel the dream, and Daniel himself is shaken. And I love Daniel's response. And this happens in verse 19. My Lord, may the dream apply to those who hate you and its interpretation to your enemies. What? Hold the phone. Like, is Daniel um, not a Jew? Is Daniel not a slave of King Nebuchadnezzar? Has King Nebuchadnezzar not killed so many innocent lives and behaved so badly, ripping them from their homes, taking their freedoms? And yet Daniel responds in the most amount of humility, honor, and love with the words, May the dream and its interpretation happen to your enemies, not to you. The tree you saw, which grew large and strong, whose top reaches to the sky and was visible to the whole earth, and whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, 
And on it was food for all under it the wild animals lived. And in its branches, the birds of the sky lived. That tree is you, your majesty. For you have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown and even reached the sky. And your dominion extends to the ends of the earth. The king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump with its roots in the ground and with a band of iron and bronze around it in the tender grass of the field. Let him be drenched with the dew from the sky and share food with the wild animals for seven periods of time. This is the interpretation. Your majesty And this is the decree of the Most High that has been issued against my Lord, the King. You will be driven away from people to live with the wild animals. You will feed on grass like cattle and be drenched with the dew from the sky for seven periods of time until you acknowledge, say that again, Until you acknowledge the Most High is ruler over human kingdoms, and he gives them to anyone he wants. As for the command to leave the tree stump with its roots, your kingdom will be restored to you as soon as you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, my advice seems good to you, my king, separate yourself from your sins by doing what is right and from your injustices by showing mercy to the needy. Perhaps there will be an extension of your posterity. Nebuchadnezzar, the consequences of guilt before the Lord in doing the detestable things from Proverbs 6.16. Nebuchadnezzar, in his unwillingness to humble himself, in his despising of the word, scoffing, ridiculing, in his rebellion, his obstinance, hard-heartedness for returning and acknowledging was removed from community. Now I'm not saying, please do not hear me say that I'm referring to COVID, because I'm not. He was removed from all of his ability to influence. He then was given over to carnal behaviors by living with the wild animals, behaving like a wild animal, eating what the wild animals ate for seven periods of time, which is seven years. His desires became so tenacious that they were filled in carnality. And thirdly, he was disheveled in his appearance, no longer recognizable. According to historic accounts, this is considered a type of werewolfism, they say. You know, whatever that is. Um, 
His nails got really, really long. His hair was really, really long and matted. He was just disheveled. And it reminds me of the man at the tombs in the New Testament. Because one thing was certain, and Nebuchadnezzar will say it as we go on. Nebuchadnezzar entered a state of madness. A state of wild or chaotic activity. Now, please do not hear me say that this is mental illness. I am not saying that. But as the people who, and I can't think of their names right now, I think it's Eldridge, who do love and respect, that course love and respect, it's the crazy cycle. Meaning, you can obsess about justifying yourself when something goes wrong, and that obsession about justifying self can keep you up all night. In fact, it can totally transform your emotional state of being and cause you to get hypersensitive in your thoughts that then you think everybody's out to get you. That's the crazy cycle. That's madness. Because it moves you from a state of remembering who you are. And it puts you in a state of being less than who you are. That is madness. King Nebuchadnezzar says this, but at the end of those days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up to heaven and my sanity returned to me. Then I praised the Most High and honored and glorified him who lives forever for his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All of the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing and he does what he wants with the army of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth. There is no one who can block his hand or say to him, What have you done? At that time, my sanity returned to me and my majesty and splendor returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and my nobles sought me out. I was reestablished over my kingdom and even more greatness came to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, Praise, exalt, and glorify the king of heavens because all his works are true and his ways are just. He is able to humble those who walk in pride. It reminds me of the scripture in the New Testament that says either you fall on the rock or it crushes you when it falls on you. Be attentive to when God is reaching out. When we're looking at guilt consciousness, looking for cause and effect, the last question the Lord asked me was, how does deliverance from guilt take hold? And in my readings from 2 Kings all the way to the book of Daniel, one thing became very evident in every story. Humility was like yeast is to making bread. It was the precursor 
Two things are necessary for deliverance. Humility is one of them. Second Chronicles 36, at the end of the chapter in verse 22, talks about King Cyrus. And it says, But the Lord roused the spirit of King Cyrus to proclaim, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to build him a temple at Jerusalem and Judah. But the Lord aroused. What does rousing mean? It means to be awakened. To be awakened to an understanding, to a true reality, like someone coming out of coma. It means to be stirred out of sleep and out of inactivity. In the first chapter of Ezra, that same sentence is used not only to talk about Cyrus, but also to talk about the heads of the families of Judah and Benjamin and the Levites, who were the only ones who left upon Cyrus's declaration of freedom to go back to their God and their home to build his temple. Cyrus said this, the Lord, the God of the heavens, and I know I've read it once, I'm gonna read it again, because his response to understanding that God had chosen him is very different than Nebuchadnezzar's response when he knew that God had chosen him. He had been given one dream before the second one came. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to build him a temple at Jerusalem and Judah. We're going to unpack a little bit of this. I want to unpack some of the deliciousness that uh, resides. And this is just a short little snippet. I wish I had time to unpack all of the deliciousness that I have encountered. I mean, honestly, I was totally jazzed. Who needed food and water? Not me, because I was feasting off of the promises and the presence of the Lord for days. Ask Alin. I was driving her crazy with all of my excitement. She's my witness. The name Cyrus means to possess thou the furnace. Hosea talks about the furnace. Now let's remember, I talked about a furnace already, right? King Nebuchadnezzar. Hosea talks about the furnace being the desires or the heart of man that burns hot with desire. Okay? So when Nebuchadnezzar is manifesting this, turn up the heat on the furnace seven times greater, he's actually putting into natural manifestation something that is hidden here within him. Cyrus actually, in contrast to Nebuchadnezzar, possesses his own furnace. That is self-discipline. It is a fruit of the spirit that manifests in Cyrus. He yields and humbles himself to the word of the Lord that Daniel revealed to him that was written by the Lord years before he ever showed up on the scene. And he humbles himself and possesses his own furnace. He grabs a hold of it and does not let it just have its own chaotic way in madness. 
He is commissioned to build the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem in Judah. The name Jerusalem actually means the teaching of peace. And it is peace that he declares when he releases the people. And Judah actually means praise. And it is praise and worship that he gives to the God of heaven and earth, commissioning the whole kingdom to give gold, silver, goods, livestock, anything that's needed to build the temple and to fund the project from the royal treasury. Guilt consciousness. When we look for cause and effect, and I'm asking you not to look at your neighbor. I'm asking you to look at yourself. What leads you into being guilty before the Lord? In case you forgot, your arrogant eyes, which is exaggerated sense of one's own importance that supersedes the value or importance of another. Your lying tongue, even the small little white lies. Hands that shed innocent blood. How apropos considering what has just been found in our nation. A heart that plots wicked schemes. Feet eager to run to evil. When we give false testimony about another based on our own perceptions. And when we stir up trouble amongst brothers. Where does our guilt reside? Well, it's going to reside before the Lord. It's going to reside in our pride and hardened hearts. How does a guilt affect our beings? It puts us on the crazy cycle. It removes us from community, destroys relationships. It allows us to feed our carnal desires and it dishevels our appearance. Lastly, how does deliverance from guilt take hold? When we choose to humble ourselves, the Lord rouses our spirits to build his church and come back home. This is the beginnings of transformation or reformation. It's time to turn our hearts and our attention, as my friend Pam would say, that we would see Jesus eye to eye and heart to heart facing him rather than giving him our backside and thinking we know the way. <laughs>